KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Some medical workers ask for religious exemptions to COVID vaccines. We don't really have any strong guidance to really say exactly what is a valid religious exemption. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heineman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Whether Governor Gavin Newsom wins or loses, we'll look at how the recall will impact both state and national politics. One need only look at states like Arizona, Georgia, and Florida for the role of a governor who's anti-science in dealing with the pandemic. We'll examine how wildfire litigation lawyers show up in Northern California and a conversation with SDSU graduate Destin Cretton, director of Marvel's new superhero feature. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. A federal mandate is now in place for the nation's health care workers to get their COVID-19 vaccinations. And a California vaccine mandate requires health care workers to be vaccinated by September 30th. But so far, neither requirement has persuaded an estimated 3% of San Diego hospital staff members to get their shots. San Diego healthcare providers report thousands of requests for exemptions from the vaccine requirement, most based on religious objections. Joining me is San Diego Union Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson. And Paul, welcome. Thanks for having me. Are religious objections allowed under these new vaccination mandates for healthcare workers? Oh, yes, they are. Absolutely. Uh, the, uh, the state uh, makes it clear that uh, religious exemptions are allowed, as does the federal government. You, you may heard, have heard uh, President Biden talk about the, the new uh, vaccination mandates for uh, federal workers and contractors throughout the United States. Uh, and in, in the press conference leading up to that announcement, they, they definitely uh, listed re- religious exemptions as being valid. So absolutely, they are. But you also described them as narrow religious exemptions. What does that mean? That was how they described it. Uh, they don't really feel terribly narrow to me, uh, having looked into this last week, uh, you know, talking to some of our local uh, hospitals and healthcare systems. They pretty much all indicated, you know, we see people making certain claims like, uh, you know, issues with uh, stem cells being uh, used in the vaccines or just uh, saying that their body is a temple uh, as the main, their main reasons for uh, requesting a religious exemption. And, and our local uh, folks, at least, are all saying the same thing, which is, you know, we don't really have any strong guidance to really say exactly what is a valid religious exemption and what is not. If you look uh, at the Catholic Church, uh, at the Southern Baptist uh, Conference, at, at other uh, major denominations, uh, they all pretty much universally say in written statements that they have no problem with these vaccines and how they were developed uh, and that their parishioners are free to take them. So there doesn't really seem to be a, a major religious uh, uh, pushback against at least these mRNA vaccines by Pfizer and Moderna. Now, you spoke with a healthcare worker who is refusing to be vaccinated for religious reasons. Can you tell us what she told you? 
she had kind of a uh, kind of a combination of some of the reasons that some of the hospitals were saying they're seeing their worker site most often. A, uh, some uncomfortability with what might be in the vaccine, and B, kind of a feeling that no one has the right to tell her what to put in her body. This all kind of coalesced into a request for religious exemption. We talked about her religion. Uh, she said she's Christian, but not uh, not of any specific denomination, though she says she does attend uh, church regularly. Um, and so uh, she said that her her request uh, after some back and forth with her employer was approved. So, so it seemed like that was enough uh, to get an exemption. There are, of course, people who can't get vaccinated because of medical issues, but there are also a large number of healthcare workers who simply haven't responded to requests to show proof of vaccination. Why is that? Yeah, that's right. Sharp said they still have uh, in a workforce of about 22,000 people, uh, over 1,300, who haven't responded or request an exemption. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's a little unclear. Uh, you know, it's hard to know what you don't know, as, as someone once said. Uh, and, and in this case, uh, you know, they're just not communicating on it. Um, I, I'm not sure that anybody's really come up with a super clear reason as to why that is. Maybe they just haven't gotten around to it. Maybe maybe they, they just intend to walk off the job on September 30th when the state's vaccine mandate for healthcare workers takes effect. Uh, I think everybody's waiting to find out exactly what their reason is. Now, the healthcare institutions, even if they might want to crack down on the non-vaccinated, they're hesitating because staffing is a problem right now, isn't it? Right. I, it's, it feels a little like a game of chicken to me. Uh, you know, you, you have the healthcare systems reporting, gosh, we're strapped for workers. A lot of the uh, the part-time workers or uh, or uh, traveler workers, as they call them, have have gone to southern states where their their COVID uh, situation has been uh, much worse than it has been here on the West Coast. Uh, and at the same time, you see uh, lots of facilities throughout the nation reporting a surge in non-COVID related ailments. Uh, at the same time as you've had the COVID surge as well, so you know hospital occupancy generally uh, and healthcare utilization generally has been way up over the summer. So uh, nobody really feels like they have enough workers in the first place. So to think that uh, even three percent of of workers could could walk off their jobs on September 30th, uh, just is making everybody really nervous. And it kind of makes you ask yourself, could the state really afford to allow it to come to a point where they're denying some of these religious exemptions and, and allowing workers to walk? It just, it feels a little untenable at this point. What kind of leeway has the state and federal government given healthcare providers to allow religious exemptions? It's really interesting. You know, I was talking to, to Scripps about this uh, last week, and they were saying, you know, we're getting these uh, religious exemption requests, and we, we don't really feel like we necessarily have an ability to parse out whose exemption is genuine and whose is not. We would like the state to give us some more clarity on how we should kind of adjudicate this between now and September 30th when the mandate takes effect. And you know, I reached out to the state, uh, CDPH uh, and others uh, last week, and uh, and they said they, they do not intend to to make any additional uh, information available on, on how individual hospitals and health systems should make these decisions. So it seems like they're really kind of leaving it in the individual system's laps to do as they see fit. And talking to, to Sharp uh, executives last week, they were like, hey, we don't really see how we can deny these. Uh, who are we to say whether these are genuine or not, these religious requests? So it, it looks like a lot of uh, places are just um, going to go ahead and, and grant them uh, because they don't really have any super firm 
reason not to, and it kind of puts them in a in an adversarial position with their own staff who they vitally need to do work right now. What will non-vaccinated healthcare workers need to do instead of getting vaccinated in order to keep their jobs? If you get an exemption for medical or uh, religious reasons, you will need to be uh, tested twice weekly. You need to test negative to come to work. And, and everybody in, in healthcare facilities at this point is still you know, universally wearing masks. So that will continue as well. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune healthcare reporter Paul Sisson. And Paul, thank you. Thank you. Tomorrow is the deadline to vote in the gubernatorial recall election. Voter turnout is likely to decide whether Governor Gavin Newsom is removed from office, and if so, who replaces him. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen says whether Newsom wins or loses, the election will reverberate in state and even national politics. In San Diego and across California, students and teachers have been returning to in-person schooling with spirit and a requirement to wear masks indoors. Teachers and school staff are also required to be vaccinated for COVID-19 or submit to weekly testing. Those public health policies will likely change in California if Governor Gavin Newsom is recalled. One need only look at states like Arizona, Georgia, and Florida for the role of a governor who's anti-science in dealing with the pandemic. Sonia Diaz is a UCLA political science professor and founder of the Latino Policy and Politics Initiative. Most of the leading candidates to replace Newsom are Republicans who oppose statewide vaccine and mask mandates. And Diaz says while Newsom has been willing to increase state spending to deal with the pandemic, a Republican governor is likely to cut spending. This means that we are not going to have the full arsenal of our government resources. Now, ultimately, this is really hard because we know who suffers when bad policy exists, and that's black and brown communities who have borne the brunt of the health and wealth impacts of this pandemic. We know that California is a bellwether for other states. UCSD political science professor Marissa Abrahano says if Republicans succeed in recalling Newsom and replacing him with one of their own, the effects could be felt across the country. It could embolden uh, Republican governors in other states to continue with their policies, especially given the kind of polarized political environment that we currently live in. It could also give a boost to Republican enthusiasm and fundraising efforts ahead of the 2022 midterm elections. Perhaps even more consequential, Dianne Feinstein is 88 and the oldest sitting senator. A Republican governor would almost certainly appoint a Republican to fill her seat if she couldn't finish her term. That would give Republicans their Senate majority back. And Diaz says even conservative appointments to state positions could change how California California tackles housing, climate change, and education. These appointments include cabinet positions. They also include positions around important boards and commissions, whether that's the Air Resources Board, the University of California's Board of Regents, but our state judiciary. So those are powers that you can see, you know, from one day to the next shift. What's unlikely to change with the Republican governor is legislation. Democrats still hold supermajorities in the state assembly and Senate, meaning they could pass laws and override a veto from the governor if they stay united. And Abrahano thinks they would. I mean, they're even highly united right now, as we've seen, uh, coalescing around Newsom, agreeing that other potential Democrat, high-profile Democratic candidates not 
compete in the recall election. So you can imagine that if we are in that scenario, that they would be just as united or even more highly united. Polling looks much better for Newsom now than it did just one month ago. So what if the recall fails and Newsom stays in office? He'll likely go into his 2022 re-election campaign even stronger, though Diaz says his margin of victory would matter a lot. Is this within a five-point margin? Is he going to hit it out of the park, which is more unlikely? To what extent is it going to be called that evening? We don't know. And predicting the outcome is even harder now, given shifts in voting trends. Republicans used to prefer early voting, but now are more likely to vote on Election Day. Abrahano says a victory from Newsom could also force Republicans in California to do some soul-searching. Do they want to appeal to a larger base and revert back to a more moderate version of what Republicans are? Or are they going to continue in their strategy of extreme right-wing and the party of Trump, essentially. Abrahano and Diaz agree a Republican governor would face an all-but-impossible re-election campaign in 2022. That's because Republicans are such a minority in California, low-turnout special elections are the only path they have to statewide victory. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. Joining me with more on the recall election is UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. Thad, welcome back. Thanks. Happy almost Election Day. Yes, indeed. Now, polling is looking a lot better for Governor Newsom to survive this recall. What kind of odds do you think he has going into tomorrow's election? I think the governor is a strong favorite as polls that, that really bounced around a lot over the spring and early summer are now coming into line with what you would normally expect in California, right? Poll numbers that seem to have a consensus around a uh, 10% or more lead for uh, for Governor Gavin Newsom to survive the recall. But we've still got to, of course, run the election. That's the only poll that matters. Yeah, you know, uh, in, because of recent years, I think some of us have developed a kind of poll phobia. <laughs> could these Could this poll be wrong? Could these polls be wrong? Right. And we've seen generally that the polls that have been taken in California and at the national level doing very well and being strongly predictive of, of outcomes, whereas polls in, in some smaller states have, have not been as as strong. But look, the the these polls are all snapshots of, of what an electorate is thinking at a certain time. Uh, this election is, is a unique one, right? It's happening over a month, right? As people ba- mail in their ballots at different times. And we'll see more and more people voting in person. Uh, we've seen that this week. We'll see that today and tomorrow at these vote centers. And so none of those polls is a perfect representation of, of the, the sum total of, of, of what voters are saying and how they're casting their ballot over this month. Now, we just heard that there could be some national ramifications if Governor Newsom loses this recall election, like uh, a Republican governor being able to replace Senator Dianne Feinstein if she could not complete her term. But my question is, do you think there would be any national repercussions if Newsom wins and is not recalled? I think people across the country are looking to this election as as a harbinger of what might be happening in in 2022, right? As this uh, as we have crucial House races, including many battleground congressional districts in California, this recall will will set the stage for that, right? If it's a Republican upset win, that sets the narrative, just like the Democrats' upset win in an Alabama Senate race set the narrative heading into the 2018 congressional elections. The other thing that's going on is there's been this 
kind of clash of, of two governing approaches, right? The California approach on the one hand versus the Texas or Florida approach on the other hand. Things like strong environmental protections uh, and, and really strong actions to stop the spread of COVID opposed to what people see as a more business friendly and, uh, and freedom oriented approaches of states like Texas or, or, or Florida, this election is in many ways seen as a referendum on that approach to COVID and government in general. And does California's approach have popular support? If Republicans are not successful in this recall effort, some are speculating that it will lead to soul searching within the party about the direction of the GOP in California. Do you think that's likely? Yes, but that's the same conversation that we've had after nearly every election for the last 10 years, right? After the monumental 2010 election, which was the, which set in place a series of, uh, of elections in which California never, uh, never elected a Republican to, the, to any statewide office, right, from t- 2010 onward, where California's electorate was then clearly more reflective of the diversity. There had been that conversation, uh, you know, and then in the succeeding elections when Democrats uh, got and solidified the two-thirds margin in each legislature. There's been a series of postmortems on the GOP in California and soul-searching uh, conversations. But the problem is with the weak parties we have in California, there's no one person, there's no small group of people who can turn the party in a different direction. And so it will be an evolving conversation uh, about what's next if the GOP loses this golden opportunity. You know, once again, Thad, voters have come face to face with California's unusual recall process, and they have to confront the fact that someone could become governor with only 20% of the vote. Do you foresee any effort brewing to reform that process? Yes, though it will be challenging because <laughs> it's always difficult, right? No one ever made a political career out, off of monkeying with the rules uh, that, that might take away power from the people. But I think there will be a unique political opportunity that opens up here if the recall is unsuccessful, right? If Democrats can win this race, then I think they have the opportunity to consider reforms without looking like it's sour grapes, right? Why didn't we get a, re- a reform of the recall process after 2003, right, when all these problems became clear and many of us were talking about them, because it would have seemed like sour grapes if the Democrats who just lost to Arnold Schwarzenegger changed the rules of the game. But if if, if Democrats win under these rules of the game, then I think it's open, their voters may be open to considering changes. We just saw a poll come out today and we'll be seeing, we actually have a uh, UC San Diego Yankelovich Center poll just going out into the field that will have results in, in the next week or so that will look at what voters thought about this process, whether they want to keep it, whether they want to change it and what process they'd like to use. Should we have an independent commission? Should the legislature come up with ideas? Uh, should, you know, how should voters finally decide on a process to once and for all uh, reconsider uh, a recall process that, uh, that, that has many cracks that have opened up. But right now, our recall election is tomorrow, and I'm sure we'll be talking to you again, Thad. I've been speaking with UC San Diego political science professor Thad Kauser. Thank you. Thanks for having me. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.
You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Later today, President Biden will visit Northern California areas recently impacted by devastating wildfires. Here in San Diego, the combination of higher temperatures, ongoing drought, and less rainfall make for a potentially potent fire season as we enter the fall months. Joining us to talk about the upcoming fire season is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins. Gary, welcome. Hi, good to be with you. So you quote a local U.S. Forest Service manager who thinks San Diego is primed to burn. What are the reasons for that assessment? Well, if you look at what's been happening over the past decade, our our rainfall is way below normal and temperatures are way up. In fact, we've had six six of the hottest uh, 10 years on record in San Diego have occurred since 2014. So it's been an extraordinary combination of record temperatures and below average rainfall. With climate change, you know, it seems our idea of seasons may be shifting. Can you remind us traditionally when fire season is and how long it lasts? Here in Southern California, we've uh, long thought of fire season as the beginning of the Santa Ana winds, which in the past was usually around September, maybe sometimes early October, and would be over perhaps by Thanksgiving. But what scientists and firefighters are telling us is that the season has shifted and become longer. So we see the onset of Santa Ana winds typically now in October, but they go into January and into February. And sometimes they happen in rapid uh, succession as they did last winter, which means that sometimes you can have a fire uh, start um, and it'll be blown not just by that one event, by but by another one and another one after that. And that just makes the potential spread of wildfire even worse. How has San Diego been preparing for the upcoming fire season? So San Diego, as you know, is home of uh, UC San Diego, and they have a very major program on this. Um, they are helping to to build out what is called Alert Fire Network, in which they're placing cameras in uh, five western states. Uh, these are, are, are web cameras that are high resolution, high definition. There are more than uh, 850 of them in California, 37 in, in San Diego County. Uh, they've added uh, more than 150 of these cameras just over the past year. The cameras help confirm the location of a fire and help tri- triangulate exactly where it is. And then um, those cameras take live feeds and send them to firefighters. So incident commanders can get to a place much quicker and have better strategy on what to do. Plus the information that comes from the cameras uh, is used in fire modeling. I was kind of stunned last week when I learned that each of these cameras takes more than 86,000 frames a day, and each frame has 2 million pixels. And within those uh, 2 million pixels, it's not only what you see with your eye, but what software pulls out about, you know, the type of vegetation and how hot it is and how dry it is and which way the fire is moving. So the, um, the quality and the speed of data going to firefighters is improving by uh, great amounts. And there's also been a big contribution by San Diego Gas and Electric, which installed 220 weather stations around the county. And these are really good at saying what's occurring where. So that can be filtered into the weather models as well. And it really helps firefighters. In your article, which you wrote with Rob Nikoluski, you mentioned that there is a good chance that we will experience another La Nina this winter. Explain to us what this would look like for San Diego. So La Nina is a periodic climate change that occurs out in the Pacific Ocean. And in many instances, it can uh, result in uh, below average rainfall in Southern California and in Northern California at times. It It depends on what happens with the jet stream. It's the other side of 
El Nino. So we all know that El Nino tends to bring us a lot of rain, but um, La Nina tends to cause the opposite. We've only had four and a half inches, roughly four and a half inches of rain during the rainy season. So the rainy season goes from October 1 to September 30. We're just a few weeks away from ending our current season. We only got four and a half inches of rain. The average is about 10, so we're doing poorly. And that number is down probably because of last year's La Nina. And the one that's developing now could have the same kind of effect. So it just extends a period of drought at a time when the temperatures are ever higher. So have officials developed any new strategies after the recent large and, and destructive fires in Northern California? Are, are there any lessons learned? Well, uh, the northern part of the state and the southern part are very different. The vegetation up there, the forests are much thicker, and the fires often tend to burn um, uh, longer. They don't often need the same kind of winds that we do. But people here do watch what has happened up there. And one of the things people are worried about is erratic behavior of fire. There's a belief that climate change is causing wildfires to react in more erratic ways, and that poses a lot of problems for firefighters. Now, to some degree, it happens down here, too. One of the things firefighters are worried about down here are called fire whirls or fire tornadoes. That refers to rotating columns of air and fire and debris. They whip up real fast. They're like mini tornadoes and they don't often know when they're coming. They've been seeing a lot of these down here in Southern California in recent years. It's very erratic and it's very worrisome uh, because these little tornadoes tend to throw off embers that can start secondary fires. So the firefighters we were talking to about um, were concerned about that. They saw they had seen some of this occur this past year up in Northern California, and they are concerned that they could see the same kind of thing down here. This all brings them back to using technology at a much meta, more meta layer. For example, um, these cameras that I've been talking about in the weather stations, they're feeding data to incident commanders much faster. The software today is so much better. So incident commanders are getting much better images on their cell phones, for example, of where the perimeter of the fire is and in what direction it's going and how fast it's moving. And the modeling helps to predict where it might go based on what they know about fire and based on what's happened in the past. So incident commanders have um, you know, better ways to strategize. But at the same time, we're talking about wildfire and it can move so quickly. And there's a problem that we simply have in Southern California. We have so much chaparral. This is a collection of, uh, of brushland vegetation and it is the single most flammable vegetation in the United States. And it just causes a lot of fires to run away, particularly when the winds come. So we're better off in knowing when things are coming at us and strategizing, but we're still dealing with this awful, awful beast. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Gary Robbins. Gary, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. The huge Dixie Fire is still burning in Northern California. It's destroyed more than 900,000 acres and left hundreds of people homeless in small communities across the region. And Pacific Gas and Electric has admitted its equipment may have sparked the blaze. While firefighters still struggle to get the blaze under control, attorneys from the wildfire litigation industry are already in the area offering their services to survivors of the Dixie Fire. But there are claims that previous fire damage settlements negotiated by many of the same attorneys 
have made lawyers and trustees rich, but have not fulfilled promises made to fire victims and help them restart their lives. Joining me is KQED reporter and co-host of the California Report, Lily Jamali. Lily, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. Now, you begin your report talking about the wildfire litigation industry. It's apparently become something of a ritual for law firms to show up after fires in California. Tell us about that. Yeah, so as we see these fires come through different communities in California, uh, usually within a couple of weeks, you see various attorneys from law firms, not just in the regions where the fires have hit, uh, but from all across California, and in some cases all across the country, descend on these communities, sometimes just a couple of weeks after the fire has come through. People are still sort of coming to terms with what has just happened to them. And so they're basically being confronted with a potentially life-changing decision about which lawyer to go with. Now, one prominent attorney in this process is a litigation lawyer out of Texas named Michael Watts. He recently met with Dixie Fire survivors. What did he tell them? Yeah, so he held a meeting at the Quincy Public Library in Plumas County, and uh, you know, various people from the community were there in person, but he also streamed this town hall online. And the one that we watched, um, Aaron Brockovich, who is a paid spokesperson for this particular firm, it's called Watts Guerra, this group has enlisted her help uh, to you know, basically try to recruit clients. And what, you know, some of the things that Michael Watts said included what you would expect from a lawyer trying to, um, you know, to recruit people to his roster. Um, things, you know, basically just saying that, you know, pg and is, uh, is a prime target for litigation because they have a track record of causing these fires. And he's basically trying to sell them on their services, showing that they have experts that can go in and do this work and make the case. But he also made some very interesting disclosures, including uh, the fact that he was involved in, uh, you know, basically lobbying activities in Sacramento. And I think one of the most interesting and important things to know about him is he's also taken a $400 million was what he revealed at that town hall meeting in litigation funding from Wall Street interests that are also very involved in PG&E and were very involved in PG&E's recent bankruptcy. So that has given some people pause. There's also a law firm from San Diego that's active in speaking with fire victims in Northern California, isn't there? There is. Uh, there's actually a number of firms in San Diego that have experience with fire litigation because, you know, SDG&E had a series of fires, um, you know, a decade or two ago. And so many of the lawyers that we see up here in Northern California hail from San Diego. But the one I think you're referring to is called Potter Handy. And one of my colleagues from KUNR in Reno attended a barbecue uh, that Potter Handy had held in the uh, Plumas County area, right across from the courthouse there. And one of the things that was a little bit concerning to some of the people who were seeing this flyer go around uh, on social media was the idea that they'd be offering free food. And by the way, um, look over there, there's a stack of legal contracts in case people are, you know, interested in signing up. And the deal is if they get a reward that the law firm will get 25% of any reward. 
Now, a couple of years ago, Watts and other attorneys did negotiate a huge wildfire damage settlement with PG&E. It was announced as a record $13.5 billion settlement to help 70,000 victims of the campfire and other PG&E sparked fires. My question is, what's happened to that money? How much of that money have victims seen? Yeah, this is so important. I mean, this $13.5 billion number is essentially a mirage. Half of it was funded by PG&E in the form of stock of PG&E itself. That was part of the deal. And Michael Watts, you know, touts this deal on his website, and he's talking about it as really a selling point for why people should go with his firm. But if you talk to people who are currently, you know, stuck in limbo, they maybe had their home or their businesses destroyed, maybe they lost loved ones in fires that PG&E caused between 2015 and 2018. All of those claims ended up in the bankruptcy court when PG&E declared Chapter 11 in 2019. So the idea that they would now be 24% shareholders of PG&E is, uh, is very upsetting to a lot of them. And it's also part of the reason why getting money into the hands of these victims is a process that's taken so long. Uh, you have to sell stock, and selling 500 million shares of stock that um, is not doing well as PG&E continues to cause more fires, that's been very challenging. So far, the trust set up to distribute this money has put about $740 million into the hands of those past fire victims. But you found out not all of them have been able to rebuild their lives with that settlement money. What did they tell you? Yeah, so many people are still living in trailers and campers, really on the edge of homelessness, because they are waiting for this settlement money. You know, the problem from the conversations that we've had with the trustee overseeing that distribution process is partly that they just don't know how much money they have to distribute. So if you are among the lucky few who have had your claim you know, looked at and scrutinized and you've gotten a determination letter, uh, you're only getting 30% of what you are owed. And we also had a conversation with a trustee last month in which he told us that these victims will never be made whole. That is really disappointing. And I think it really begs the question, how is this allowed to happen? Is there any state control over what some might see as predatory practices waged by wildfire litigation attorneys against vulnerable fire victims? What the state bar is doing right now in conjunction with the district attorney of Plumas County, David Hollister, is really trying to just urge people to go slowly. You don't have to make a decision right now. You know, there's a lot going on. You're still processing everything that happened. And in the interest of avoiding a situation where you might end up with somebody that you're not happy with, or maybe even worse, where there's a a fraud situation, it's really important to just make sure that you feel you're ready to make this very important decision. And the district attorney in Plumas County says that applies not just to attorneys, but also to contractors. So there's a lot of big decisions that these fire survivors are making right now. So just make sure you're really ready to make those choices. I've been speaking with KQED reporter and co-host of the California Report, Lily Jamali. Lily, thank you very much. Thank you. (laughs) 
KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a blend of computer science, statistics, and domain expertise. Learn more about University of California San Diego's online Master of Data Science program at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Kavanaugh. SDSU film school grad Destin Cretton has just directed the first Asian superhero film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando met him two decades ago and just interviewed him for her latest Cinema Junkie podcast. Here's an excerpt. I met Destin Cretton 20 years ago at a student film festival I used to run called Film School Confidential. Then I had the pleasure of showcasing his student work at the festival, starting in 2002 with Long Branch, A Suburban Parable, and continuing with Bartholomew's Song, a dystopian sci-fi film. Bartholomew 467, defective. Then he delivered Deacon's Mondays and his award-winning short-term 12. Good morning, short-term 12. Ten minutes to line up for breakfast. With each film, he tried something new, but he always displayed a compassion and empathy for his characters as they struggled to find connections and a place in the world. Through the student festival, I had the opportunity to watch him grow and mature as both a person and a filmmaker. But he always displayed a careful thoughtfulness, and this interview provides insights into his creative process in ways that can be helpful to any filmmaker. We talk about community, challenging oneself as an artist, and of course, about Shang-Chi. So it's not often I get to say that I was there when a filmmaker's career began, but I can say that about Destin. <laughs> I mean, you can you can say that you were there before I even knew that I could do it as a hobby. It was Film School Confidential. We were watching Greg Durbin's short film, and that was before I had done anything. So you and everything you've done in San Diego has been a huge inspiration for me. Well, I was going to say, what was it that really made you decide that you were hooked on filmmaking, that this was something you really had to do? I remember the first time that I did a short film that was this little black and white silent movie shot on Super 8. And I showed it to my class and it was the first time that I experienced that buzz and anxiety that comes with exposing yourself to an audience. It was also the first time that I got to see the response from that audience. And the entire process of making a, a collaborative piece of art and then watching that piece of art interact with an audience, that was so energizing to me. That happened in film school. It was actually just before I came down and, and came to your film school confidential, but I had already been hooked on the process of filmmaking. What I'm hooked on has nothing to do with awards, film festivals, buzz of a movie I'm working on. It, it really is such a pure, fulfilling process to work on collaborative art pieces like this. It's really been a delight and a thrill to see you evolve through your student shorts and early independent films. And since you're doing a Marvel origin film right now, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, I thought maybe we could do a little of your origin story Ooh. and kind of go back into uh, your early roots of filmmaking. 
But one thing I noticed from seeing all your student films and watching you progress, even though you worked in a lot of different genres and the styles were a little different, the one thing that really linked all your films was this thematic sense of community. 10 minutes to line up for breakfast. We have waffles today. Oh, the waffles are pretty good here. Nice. Hey, Natalia, do we have anything for Jane? I made her a cupcake, it's in the fridge. And that always seemed to be something that drove your storytelling. And I was wondering what it was about that that kind of attracted you or, or made you kind of keep that thread running. I was actually just having a conversation with somebody recently about what San Diego meant to me and what that time there meant to me. I lived there for 10 years after living the first 20 years of my life on Maui in the middle of the Pacific. And San Diego for me was exactly that. It was a community of people who I really felt safe around. I felt supported to explore and take chances and really find out what I wanted to do, what kind of stories I wanted to tell. And I actually tried going to LA a little earlier and the pace of it, the big money that's that's surrounding the industry, all of that was truthfully, it was just terrifying. I was just, my heart was in my throat. It didn't feel fun. It was just scary. And I decided I, I couldn't move to LA. I thought I would never move to LA. So I went back to, to San Diego and decided to, to make movies there. And, uh, I have a tendency to isolate myself. If left to my own devices, I, I will become a bit of a hermit. But I, I also know that's not healthy for me. I get in my head too much. I start overthinking things. I stop creating. I start feeling like the world is doomed and, I, and there, there's no point in anything and I just sit in my bed. So for me, active community has been something that has kept me going and kept me healthy and I mean, I'm not planning to put it into each of my projects, but even Shang-Chi, every project that I've done, I've used it to process through things that I am thinking about or going through emotions that I'm dealing with. Throughout the writing process, typically one of the answers to these problems has something to do with community, has something to do with finding stability or love or getting back on your feet by holding the hand of, of somebody else and walking through together. So I, yeah, I suppose that's where that theme kind of comes from. I want to know, how does it feel ushering in this first Asian superhero in the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Do you feel a lot of responsibility? Is this something fun, a challenge you looked forward to? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of responsibility for sure. I, I've gone through my process of really stressing out about that responsibility of really carrying the weight maybe a little too much to where it was I was unhealthily stressed about it but I do think that that amount of stress was helpful to get this story to the place where it is where I feel very proud of what we're putting out into the world and I feel extremely proud of the team that put this together and the incredible cast that we put together. Yeah, so I, I feel very happy to be contributing something special to not only the MCU, but to the world of Asian cinema and specifically Asian American cinema. I feel this 100% cannot be the end 
I feel very happy that we are contributing one next step in the process. And was there anything in particular that you felt was really important for you to make sure was in this film or something that you felt you wanted to make sure you saw be a part of this particular film? Asian cinema is huge and deep and rich and so varied. Asian American cinema is a lot smaller of a scope. And and particularly the cinema that kind of has broken through in the past and gotten past just the Asian or Asian American market and has been things that have been movies that I love and grew up on. Jackie Chan movies, Jet Li movies, Donnie Yen and the Ip Man series, uh, of course. I mean, it all started with Bruce Lee when I was a, a kid. He's unstoppable, unbeatable, unbelievable. He's Bruce Lee, the master of karate, kung fu, delivering that Chinese connection. All of that is so special and made me so proud to be of Asian descent. But there also became a point where there wasn't enough variety to give other aspects to to the Asian experience. Not all of us are speaking broken English and coming from China or Asia. And there wasn't a lot of just Asian American representation that felt like my friends, that felt like me. And so we wanted to contribute that to the MCU. We wanted our Shang-Chi to really feel like me and my friends and and be relatable to anybody who is American, whether you're Asian American or whatever ethnicity you are. My name's not technically Sean. What what is it? It's Shang-Chi. Shang-Chi. Shang. 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 S-H-A-N-G. Shang. Shang? Yeah. You change your name from Shang to Sean? Yeah, I don't... I wonder, yeah. how, I wonder how your father found okay, you. I was 15 years old, all right? What is, what is your name change logic? You going into hiding okay. and your name is Michael? You want to change it to Michael? That's, that's not what happened. It's, you, it's like, hi, my name's Gina. I'm going to go into hiding. My new name's Gina. And then we also wanted to make sure that each of the characters in this movie were not furthering stereotypes that have been continually revamped over the years. And I feel very happy about that, that every character in this movie, there's a lot of Asian faces, no two are the same. They have drastically different personalities. And if anything, when you walk out of this theater, I hope whether consciously or subconsciously, you will be much less likely to say, all Asians are the same. That was Beth Accomando speaking with filmmaker Destin Cretton. His new film, Shang-Chi, is currently in cinemas. Listen to the full interview and catch the latest companion geeky gourmet video at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more mcasd.org.